Um, before we start today, I was thinking about this idea of, of before and after. Before and after. I was thinking even uh, as to my own life, and I was thinking about my marriage. And there are a few things you learn before marriage and after marriage. So if you're married in here today, you're going to say, I know exactly what you're talking about. And if you're a single in here today, I want you to listen because this is important for you to learn. Before marriage, before marriage, it is the sound of music. And after marriage, it is the sound of silence. Before marriage, it is $60 for a dozen. And after marriage, it's $1.50 for a stem. Okay? Uh, Before marriage, (laughs) before marriage, you heard something like this. You're shopping? I'll go with you. Okay? Any of you men? After marriage, (laughs) after marriage, it's let's just meet up after two hours. Or text me when you're done. Before marriage, before marriage, you might hear a, a woman say, you're so lost without me. And after marriage, it's, why can't you stop and ask for directions? And then you got to look at this and say, well, what about, what about, what about parenthood? Before and after parenthood. Before, before children, you are thankful for a warm and cozy home to share with loved ones. And after children, you're thankful for a lock on the bathroom door. Amen. Uh, Before children, uh, you're thankful for material objects like custom furniture, a nice car, and trendy clothes. And after children, you're just thankful when the baby spits up and misses your good shoes. The whole idea of before and after, I love a good before and after story. Even with Portable Church, even with this church, Restoration, you see a great transformation on Sunday morning in this place. The first week we came in here a couple weeks ago, uh, we came in, and in the back there was a there was a wedding reception the night before. And unfortunately, the wedding reception had left all their stuff out. And we had to come in and we had to transform that room. We had to clean it up. We had to mop it up. We had to sweep. We had to move stuff around so that we could have a safe place for our kids. And so if you look at the before and after, so it was a pretty remarkable change between the before and after, for those of you that saw that. In today's message, uh, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. Uh, we'll be looking at an amazing story, a uh, before and after story that happened in only just a few weeks. Uh, if, uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we, wanna, we are people of the Bible here. Um, we, uh, I don't think you really want to come and just listen to me talk about whatever I want. So we're going to look at God's Word each week. And so if you need a copy of God's Word, uh, I'm not sure in the back, if you just raise your hand up, uh, you can grab a copy of uh, God's Word. Um, and we're going to look today in Acts chapter 2 at a great story of before and after. You see, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night Jesus was betrayed, this guy named Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples, three times Peter was approached. And he was identified by the people he was approached by. He was identified as a follower of Jesus. And three times he denied it. Three times he denied that he was a follower of Jesus. In fact, the last time he was approached by a servant girl, Not only did he deny Jesus, but he also called down curses upon himself. And so this is the Peter that we see. We see Peter being this uh, emotional guy who kind of, he's kind of like me. He speaks before he thinks, and he acts before he thinks about it. After the resurrection, Jesus restores Peter to his position. But this is a Peter we know. This is a Peter that we see. Peter the coward. Uh, But last week... We saw that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples. 
which included Peter. And so uh, we saw last week that when the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit gave the disciples this amazing power to speak with boldness and and to give them a, a passion to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And so with the 120 believers who have been filled with the Spirit, uh, they spilled into the streets and they're, they're speaking uh, the mighty works of God. And they're speaking in, in other languages they'd never learned before. And this was a miracle. And, and because these disciples who people knew and they said, man, these guys don't speak these languages. What's going on? There became a crowd gathering around. And the crowd gathered around because they wanted to know, man, what's the deal? What's going on? So this is where we really see Peter's before and after. Because before he was filled with the Spirit, Peter was a coward. Peter cowered before the servant girl. But after Peter becomes filled with the Spirit, verse 14 says that Peter stood up, he lifted up up his voice, and he addressed the crowd. Now you talk about amazing boldness and, and, and passion that the Holy Spirit has now given to Peter. He's transformed from before being the coward to afterwards being able to speak boldly to the truth. And what he does is he addresses the crowd is he he preaches this sermon. And the sermon is probably one of the greatest sermons ever. Peter in in Acts chapter 2 preaches probably one of the greatest sermons ever. Uh, It seems as though this new Peter who is now bold and preaches this amazing result, amazing sermon... And we'll see at the end of the chapter, there was amazing results because there were over 3,000 people that day who got saved, got baptized, and became part of the church. So we're going to look at the, we're going to look through the sermon and study the sermon that Peter preaches, which is the first sermon that really inaugurates the beginning of the church. So if you've got a Bible, we're in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And um, I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to read from verse 14 down to 41. You can follow along with me. It says this, but Peter, standing with the eleven, he lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the, great, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He continues and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed with the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at the right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make full the gladness of your presence." 
Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out, he had poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord is my Lord. Sit at my right hand, and until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel before, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, that everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It's God's word for us today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for that we can come uh, and we can open up your word and that you would speak to us through it. We thank you for this passage of scripture where it has so many verses that we read through quickly. Lord, I pray that you would begin to open our ears, open our hearts, that we would begin to understand this passage, that you would speak to us. Lord, that you would give us an ability to learn and to hear what it is that you have for every one of us in here today. Lord, I pray that your spirit would rest on us and allow us to focus and allow us to connect with you today. We ask this in your name. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. So Paul, as he begins his sermon, as he begins his one of the greatest sermons ever, he begins and he starts out with a very strong introduction. His introduction uh, is something that would have connected with his Jewish audience. Specifically, Peter's introduction deals with the issue that is pressing the crowd. Because the crowd, when they saw the disciples speaking in these foreign languages, speaking in tongues, the crowd gathered. And, and the question they asked, the question they asked is, what is going on? What does this mean? How are these people able to speak in these tongues? And, and they, the, the assumption that they made was that these guys are drunk. The assumption they made is they're filled with new wine. Now, of course, we have to understand that for those outside of the God, don't understand the gospel, it seems kind of like folly. Doesn't seem to make sense. And so the natural mind says, man, how are these people doing this miracle? It's got to be they're drunk. And Peter, realizing this, finds a way to connect with his audience. And uh, you might not find this as funny as I do, but I think it's funny the way that Peter responds. He answers this question by stating that it's only the third hour of the day. What he's saying is, come on, guys, they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. Now, we do live in a broken society full of sin, but it's rather unlikely that people would wake up early in the morning and get hammered first thing. I mean, to be hammered by 9 a.m. means you got to start drinking very early in the morning. And Paul is trying to say, come on, guys, it's 9 a.m. 
There's no way these guys are hammered. And, um, and especially on a holiday like this. Uh, in Jewish custom, the, the Jews, they wouldn't have eaten or drinking anything by 9 a.m. That, that morning. Because it was part of the Pentecost uh, festivities. They would have waited until later in the day. It's kind of like Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving, you wake up on Thanksgiving morning and you might have a little bit of coffee. You might have a small, but you're saving yourself for later in the day. And so Peter is making the statement of these guys aren't drunk. It's only nine in the morning. They're still, uh, nothing's happened. They haven't eaten or drinking. That's going to happen later. Well, not the getting drunk, but they're going to eat and drink later. And so Peter then continues his introduction by saying, what you have seen, what you've seen, this miracle, it wasn't caused by alcohol. He says it was caused by God. It was caused as a fulfillment of Scripture. And Peter then quotes, with a minor variation, he quotes a prophecy from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Now what Peter says in this is that in these last days, in the last days, God will pour out his Spirit on all flesh. Now Joel's prophecy actually says, after this, but Peter changes after this to and the last days. This change here is important that, that Peter changed this prophecy. Um, because he, what Peter is saying is, he's saying that the coming of Jesus began the last days. He says, because Jesus has come, his first coming has come, we are now in the last days. So no longer is this a future prophecy. This prophecy is happening right here, right now. This Holy Spirit outpouring at Pentecost, it inaugurated the last days. And the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all people. And they're able to do these amazing things like speaking in tongues that the people just observed. And seeing visions and dreaming dreams and doing all sorts of things. He's saying, right now, you are seeing the fulfillment of this prophecy. Today, with the Holy Spirit being poured out on these people, you are seeing this in reality. And did you catch this in this passage? Did you catch who God says the Holy Spirit we poured out upon? Remember last week when we were learning that the Holy Spirit came? It says he came and tongues of fire, what seemed as tongues of fire, rested on every one of the believers in that room that day. And here it says that the Holy Spirit will become upon sons and daughters and old men, male and female servants. You see, God's Spirit is for all. God's Spirit is not reserved for special people, not for super spiritual people. It's not reserved for a certain race or a certain demographic background. No, he's saying God's Spirit will be poured out on all people. He is making the point that God is a loving God, and he loves and he saves people from all backgrounds, from all walks of life. No matter where they've been and no matter what they've done, God's Spirit is available to them. But as we look at this prophecy, as we continue looking at it, we see that this, par, that this prophecy is only partially complete. Because at the end of this prophecy in verses 19 and 20, we read about the terrible things that will happen before the great and terrible day of the Lord. You see, for the prophet Joel, for the prophet Joel, it was kind of like he was looking out into the distance and he saw two, uh, two mountain peaks in the far distance. And he only sees, he, he doesn't see the valley in between those two mountain peaks. There's a valley between those two mountain peaks, but all he can see are the two mountain peaks. Um, uh, this valley in between these two mountain peaks, this is where we live today. You see, Christ came and God poured out his spirit. 
This happens in verse 17 and 18. And this is that first peak, the first coming of Christ. We've seen that happen. Christ has come. His spirit has been poured out. Okay. But the second peak on the other side, which is preceded by verses 19 and 20. Uh, this is the second peak. This is the second coming of Christ. When Christ comes back to rule on the earth. And between these two peaks, between these two peaks is a valley. Uh, between verses 18 and 19. And this is the missionary period of the church. This is a period in which we live today. In between the two comings of Christ. In, in scripture, this is often referred to as a law of double reference. In which the biblical prophecy has a partial fulfillment now. And a complete fulfillment at a later time. And so Joel's prophecy is in the process now of becoming fulfilled. Because the Holy Spirit has come. His Holy Spirit has been poured out on, on, on all the believers. But there's still a second coming of Christ that we are awaiting. And the last part, <clears throat> excuse me, the last part of Joel's prophecy that Peter quotes says in verse 21 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is an invitation that spans between the first and second comings of Christ. This is something that Joel only saw coming. He could picture it in the future. He could see that there would be day a day that whoever calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. And now today, Peter gets to see it in fulfillment. So after his introduction, Peter then begins his, his speech or his sermon by saying that God attested Jesus. You see this word, this word attested in verse 22. The NIV calls that word accredited. Which means that God bore witness. It means that God declared the truth. Or specifically that God gave a proof or an evidence of, of who Jesus was. And so Peter's message is really based on God giving evidence or giving proof that Jesus really was the Messiah. And so in Peter's message, you'll see four specific main points that he's going to bring out. About ways that God gave proof of that Jesus was the Messiah. So, so we're going to roll through these four points. The first one, uh, this is number two up here, was that God gave proof of who Jesus was through his life. If you look at verse 22, you look at verse 22. Do you remember, think back to the story of Nicodemus in the, in the Gospel of John. And, and the question that Nicodemus said to Jesus. He says, he says no one can do these things that you do unless God was with him. He's making a point. He's saying, Jesus, I've seen the miracles you've done. I've seen these amazing things you've done. And he's saying, nobody can do these things unless God is with him. The miracles that Jesus performed in his life. Think about that. Think about, he gave sight to the blind man that was, to the man that was blind from birth. Jesus took a handful of fish and bread and he multiplied it to feed over 5,000 families. Uh, uh, he calmed a raging storm on the sea with only a few words. He walked on water. He brought the dead back to life. These miracles that we read in the gospel stories, all throughout the gospels, Peter says that these miracles were done so that people would know who Jesus truly was. He's, he's saying here in verse 22 that you look at Jesus' life, you look at the miracles he did, and they are one of the proofs that Jesus was the Messiah. You see, when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see, these are not biographies. The Gospels are not biographies. They're testimonies. They're testimonies. John even wrote in his Gospel, 
He says, the reason I wrote my gospel, he wrote these things down in the book of John, were written in, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of, the God, the Son of God, and that, believe, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, Peter is saying, if you look at the life of Jesus, you look at the miracles he's done, it gives proof that he's Messiah. We live in this great age where not only can we go to God's word to find the miracles that he's done, but we can also look at the miracles that has happened around us. What about the miracle that God saved each and every one of us from the depths of our sin? You say, man, I don't know if God does miracles. How about the fact that God saved you? That is a miracle. I think back to a couple of miracles that I've seen in my life. There's one, uh, <laughs> there's one that happened when I was a, a young man, a, a teenager. I used to do a lot of rock climbing. I thought it was pretty cool. I had some older guys that were mentoring me. And one of their ways to mentor me was to go rock climbing. And it was great. I had a lot of fun. And I remember there's this one Saturday. The guys called me early in the morning and said, hey, we want to go climbing today. Nothing big. We're only going to go up to uh, uh, Kawichi Canyon and do some climbing. And they said, you want to come climbing with us? And I said, yeah, that sounds like fun. It was uh, Saturday morning in, in October. And uh, so we go. There's three of us. And we climbed up the rock, and it was no big deal, and it was great. We used ropes and all that good stuff, and it was fun. And uh, we started coming down. The first guy rappelled down to the bottom, and, uh, and it was my turn to rappel. So the guy on top and the guy on bottom uh, started yelling at each other because they wanted to change how we were going to rappel. They wanted to change the ropes up. So the guy on bottom yells up and says, hey, I'm going to do the ropes like this. And the guy on top says, well, I'm going to do the ropes like this. And they couldn't hear each other. They thought they did. And so the guy on bottom sets the rope up like he was expecting it to be done. And the guy on top set the rope up differently like he expected it to be done. And so they say, Kevin, here's your rope. Go ahead and start rappelling down. And so I'm rappelling down and I'm kind of horizontal against the, against the rock. And, I, and I'm bouncing down and I got about halfway down off this cliff and the rope came to an end. And I couldn't tell. I'm just rappelling down. And so when you get to the end of the rope and there's still another 35 feet underneath it, you start falling fast. And I remember as I started falling, I uh, initially came up and was falling down like this, vertical. And my head hit a rock when I was falling down. And as my head fit, I felt my body falling back. And I could feel myself falling back. Now see, where we were, it was a rock, it was a rock outcropping underneath us. And there was rocks all over the bottom. And as I started falling back, I tell you what, if I would have landed on my head, I, at 35 feet, I have no doubt that my head would have split open. But I tell you, when I was falling, as clear as can be, I felt a hand push my back. I felt a hand push my back. And as I was falling, I started falling backwards and I came back up and I was able to land feet first. And I was able to land feet first. Landing feet first probably saved my life. I have all these issues with my body nowadays because of that fall. I have bad feet and a, and a bad back and all these other things. But that was a miracle. And we live in a day and age where we still see miracles. God is still alive. God is, Jesus is still in the business of doing miracles. We see miracles like this. We see miracles of how God has pulled somebody out of the depths of their sin and given them freedom, given them restoration. We still see those miracles. And each of these miracles 
are proof that God has given us that Jesus is who he said he was as the Messiah. Number three, the second proof that God gave of who Jesus was, was through his death. When you look at verse 23. Now see, the death of Jesus, it can often be hard for some people to understand. Because if Jesus really was the Messiah... I mean, if, 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 if he's the Messiah, couldn't he have prevented himself from being killed by his enemies? I mean, if he really is so powerful and if he really is so strong, couldn't he have prevented himself from being killed by the Jews? In fact, Paul says in, uh, writes in 1 Corinthians that Christ crucified is a stumbling block for the Jews. But here Peter is making the case that this isn't the story of the unfortunate defeat of a good man who had no power to save himself. Peter says that Jesus was killed because God predetermined it before the world began. Before the world began, God predetermined that Jesus uh, would die as the savior of his people. Yes, absolutely, the, Jew, the Jews killed him. They delivered Jesus over to the Romans. They freed Barabbas instead of uh, Jesus. But Peter is saying that the Jews have not defeated the plan of God. They were simply carrying it out by God's providence. And even though God foreknew that Jesus would be crucified, Peter says, still says, that that doesn't absolve the responsibility of those who contributed to his death. Number four, the, second proof, uh, the third proof that Peter gives here is that God gave proof of who Jesus was through his resurrection. See this in verses 24 to 32. Now, we talked a couple weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago, about why the message of the resurrection was so important for the early church and why the message of the resurrection is so important to us today as we fulfill our mission of making Christ known. This topic of the resurrection is so important that here in Peter's sermon, he takes nine verses out of his sermon to deal with the idea of the resurrection. First thing to note, is that Peter refers to the resurrection as an act of God. In verse, verse 24, verse 24 it says, God raised him up. The resurrection of Jesus was an act of God. And look, Peter gives us a graphic image uh, 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 of this resurrection. He says, loosing the pangs of death. Now this word pangs usually refers to the pains of childbirth. So, you put the idea of loosing the pains of childbirth together with the next statement that says it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter is giving us a description. He's giving us a, a graphic image that death could no more keep Jesus down than a pregnant woman can hold a child in her body. Now, the pain of childbirth, I've never experienced that myself. But I have seen my wife go through that five times. And uh, watching my wife, if I were in those shoes, I would likely describe the pain of childbirth as being the pangs of death. Uh, you know, it just is not something that I would want to go through at all. Okay? But Peter is saying, just like a woman, when she feels those pains of childbirth, she can't hold that baby in her body. She cannot force that baby. And, and Peter is saying... The, the, the death could not hold Jesus. It could not keep him down. Just like that woman's got to give birth, death could not hold Jesus. And the other eight verses that Peter writes that describe Jesus' resurrection, he quote, Peter quotes from Psalm 16. In this psalm, David declares 
King David declares that God will not abandon his soul to Hades or allow his body, allow his Holy One to undergo decay. So Peter issues the argument that since David died, and since David was buried, and since David's tomb is there in Jerusalem and is still there to that day, that David's body must have undergone, undergone decay. David, when David is writing this in Psalm 16, he's not writing it about himself because David has died. David is in the grave. David's body has decayed. So therefore, David, as a prophet, he knew that God had promised this resurrection to one of his descendants. And David, as he's writing Psalm 16, he's looking ahead and he spoke in this psalm, not of his own resurrection, but of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the summary that, that Peter makes of Psalm 16, that, that David, as a prophet, looked ahead and he saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ and he wrote about it. Sir so Peter says that God gave proof of who Jesus was through his life and his miracles, through his death, and through his, through his resurrection. But number five here, Peter gives one more proof. And he says that God gave proof of who Jesus was by exalting him. In verses 33 through 35. Peter states that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And he connects the event of Pentecost with Jesus' exaltation. You see, Jesus was resurrected for a reason. Peter tells those that are listening, he says, After this resurrection, Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God in heaven. And again, Peter then pulls out from the Old Testament, and he quotes the Old Testament. This time he quotes Psalm 110. And there David says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. And so David is saying here, he says, The Lord, the Yahweh God of Israel, says to his Lord, says to David's Lord, speaking of the Messiah, the risen Jesus. Paul, any good sermon is going to have a summary, going to have a main point. And Paul summarizes his point number six in verse 36 here. Paul's summary is clear that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Now, understanding these two terms was vital for the Jews in the early church. And it's important for us to understand the difference between Lord and Christ and why Peter makes a statement to say Jesus is both Lord and Christ. These two terms, we might not think of being as different or significant, but they have two very different meanings. First, to see Jesus as a Christ means that we see Jesus as who he claimed to be, the risen Savior, the Son of God, the Redeemer, emphasizing the salvation that he brings. To view Jesus as the Christ means we understand that he is the Messiah, that salvation is through him, But to see Jesus as Lord, it doesn't just involve believing, uh, uh, believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Seeing Jesus as Lord is a recognition that he is our Lord and our master, and that we are willing to submit and to obey to him in our lives. And so Peter is saying we have to see Jesus both as Christ and Lord. Now, the final part of Peter's message calls for a response. This response comes as a result of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Verse 37 says that uh, the crowd was cut to the heart. This means that they were convicted. 
They were full of a sense of guilt for their involvement in the killing of Jesus for their sins. And with this conviction, the crowd asks this amazing question. And I want you to see this question because it really becomes our before and after. They ask this question. They say, brothers, what shall we do? Peter preaches this message to him. He preaches this message about about God proving who Jesus was through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and through his ascension, through his exaltation. And, and, and so they've heard this message, and, and they're convicted, and it says they ask, they ask the disciples, they ask Peter, what shall we do now? Now see, the difference between the beginning of the story and the end of the story. Back in verse 12, when, when the crowd first heard these disciples speaking in tongues, they asked this question. They said, what does this mean? They said, what does this mean? And now, after Peter has preached this sermon, they ask the question, what shall we do? Do you see the difference between these two questions? What does this mean? And what shall we do? For and after. See, I pray that we would be a church that approaches God's word and asks the question, now God, what shall we do? What shall we do? God's word is not just for our knowledge. It is meant to change us. How powerful would it be if we would approach the end of our time together, the end of hearing a message, the end of being in God's word, and not say, this is what I've learned, but say, God, what should I do now? What if we approach God's word with that same attitude of saying, God, in response, what shall we do? Peter answers this question with a personal response for each of them. He says, repent and be baptized. He says, each one of them must make this an individual response. Because salvation is an individual response. It's not a group plan. What does he mean when he says to repent and be baptized? Repentance is vital for our salvation. Repentance means that we have a change of direction in a person's life rather than just a mental change of attitude or a feeling of remorse. It signifies that we turn from, away from a sinful and godless way of life. And, and Peter says, repent and then be baptized. Peter is not saying that you have to be baptized to receive the forgiveness of sins. Throughout Scripture, we read time and time again that salvation is by grace through faith alone. But when Peter called upon these people to be baptized, he was calling them to make a radical break from their culture and their religion that had just crucified the Messiah and to be publicly identified with Jesus Christ. This was an outward symbol that would prove the reality of their inward repentance, their inward change, and the fact that God had forgiven their sins. And we read at the end of this passage that at the end of the day, 3,000 people were added. 3,000 people were baptized and added to their number and added to their church. Now you talk about one of the greatest sermons ever. 3,000 people added to the Lord in one day through that one message. I want to close and I want to connect this Pentecost message for us today. This message of salvation, this Jesus, this forgiveness of sin, it's the same today as it was in Pentecost. God 
is still giving proof of who Jesus was and who Jesus is through his works recorded in God's word, through his death, through his resurrection, and through his ascension. And we should know that the forgiveness of sin is still freely available for us today. One thing I wanted to teach to today is in, as you read this story, as you read this sermon that, that Peter preaches, at the end of the sermon, Peter provided an opportunity to respond to the message. And that's when the crowd asked, what shall we do? You see, as a church, we've decided, let's change some things up. Let's do things a little bit different. I said this earlier. You see, I don't want us to be a church that just comes to learn the knowledge of God's word, only to ask God, what does this mean? Because I don't think that's enough. I think that when we come to church, it's not just a matter of God, what does this mean? But it's also a matter of God, what do we do? I want you to walk in every week and ask God that same question. God, now what, do, what should I do? God, I've heard your word. Now what shall I do? In response to your word. So as a church, we've done some things a little bit differently. What we've done is we've, we've cut the, the beginning worship set. We only do a couple songs in the very beginning. And what we've done is we, we've added some time at the end of our service where we have a longer worship time at the end. Three or four songs at the end of the service. And what this provides us the opportunity is allows us to have a time of response. Allows us to respond to God's word. Our desire is that each of us would have the opportunity to respond to the message and respond to that question of now, God, now that we've heard your word, now, God, what should we do? What do we do with this? How does this change us? Because it's not just a matter to, to have that question settled of what does this mean? It also has to be, God, what do I do now? So as we begin to do church and we try and have this longer response time at the end of our service, this is an opportunity. There's no right or way to, way to respond to the message. You may choose just to close your eyes and sing along with the, with the worship songs. You may choose to stop in your seat, to kneel down, to sit down and pray before God. You may choose to say, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this. I'm, I'm wrestling with it. I need to find someone I can talk to. I need someone who will help me understand this and, and will pray with me. And, and during that response time, I'll be up at the front. And if you want someone to talk to, you want someone to pray with, come on up and let's find an opportunity that we can respond and settle that question of now, God, what should we do? Now, God, now we've heard your word and now let's respond to it. There'll be other people that, that will come up to the front. If you want to pray with somebody, if you want to talk with somebody, if you just want to have someone to put their arm around you, that's part of that opportunity to respond to God's word. Each week, we will give the opportunity not just to learn God's word, but to respond to his word. To respond to God's word. Because for me, I want us to be a church that it isn't just a matter of learning the knowledge. But I want us to ask that question, what do we do now? What shall we do now? We've heard God's word and it's not just knowledge. It's got to go from here to here. And that's in our response. So let's do that now. Let's have an opportunity to respond 
to God's Word. Let me pray, then we'll have the worship team come up. God, you are a great God, and we are so thankful for this message that we can read in your Word. That Peter clearly portrays the gospel. Clearly portrays that we, that salvation is available freely through you. Through Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the answer. That when all the world falls apart, when we feel like we don't belong, Jesus is there. And he invites us to belong. He invites us to have a relationship with him. To receive the forgiveness of sin. To be reconciled to you. And God, through that relationship, God, we can have forgiveness. We can have love. We can experience restoration. And God, I pray that as we are in this new church, in this new phase, Lord, I pray that we would be as passionate to portray Jesus as Peter was. That we would clearly portray Jesus as the answer. Not self-help, not trying harder, not, 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 not any other thing as the answer to people's lives, but Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on each of us and that we would have that same boldness and the same passion that Peter had to portray you as the Messiah. And Lord, I pray as a church that we would have the boldness to come before you at the end of the service and ask that question. Now, God, what should we do now? How do we respond? Lord, some of those in here need to repent. They need to come before you and confess. And say, God, I've walked away from you and I need to come back to you. Lord, some in here need to pray for boldness. Some of these here need to pray and see you as the solution, as the answer. But God, I pray that each of us in here today would take a moment during this response time and ask that question, now God, what should I do now? And Lord, I pray that you would give us the answer. What do we do now? Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together. We pray for this response time that it'll, your spirit will te- touch every one of us. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.